Special thank you to Michal Mursky, who actually, unfortunately, could not make it this evening, but he is sponsoring tonight's shir. In honor, to, to quote Michal, in honor of everyone who's coming and everyone who's listening, wherever they may be. So this is in honor of you. Special thank you as well to Torah Anytime for helping share this uh, share with many others across the country. The topic this evening is, Parshas Toldos, a glimpse into the future. I have uh, three basic goals. Number one is, we're not going to actually look into the future. However, we're going to look back into the future. That would be a good name for a movie, right? <laughs> Meaning to say, the goal is not to go through different midrashim and sources and try to figure out what's going to happen 10 years or 150 years from now. That, that would not be a good use of our time. But I would like to get into the sources in the, in the Tanakh and the Torah Shabbal Peh and the Oral Torah to see how certain major historical events were actually alluded to or predicted in, uh, in these parshios in particular. That's a goal number one. Goal number two is, I'd like to delve into the nature of Esav. We hear a lot about the struggle, the eternal struggle between Yaakov and Esav. like to uh, understand wh- what was going on with Esav, and was he doomed from the beginning? We know there are midrashim that tell us that even in the womb, when they were fighting together, that whenever she would walk by, Rivka would walk by a base of Azara, a place of pagan worship, Esav would want to come out and join them. And whenever she'd walk by a base of Knesset, a place of Torah, then Yaakov was trying to make his way out. So doesn't that mean that he was somewhat doomed from the beginning? How do we understand that? And uh, objective number three is trying to answer a famous question which is, what was Yitzchak thinking? He was a very smart man. I'm sure he was a loving and considerate, and he was on the ball as a father. How could he miss the boat? How could he assume that Esau was the, the one that should carry the torch and, and keep up the legacy? Didn't he see what Rivka saw? It was so clear. Yaakov was an Ishtam, Yoshev Oholim. He was a pure man who would sit all day and learn and meditate and daven. Rivka knew that. Why didn't, why didn't Yitzchak? So those are our three goals. To look into the, the future, or at least look back into the future, to understand the challenge or the, the personality of Esau. And three, to, uh, to try to answer the question, what was Yitzchak thinking? Whenever people speak about the, uh, the end of days, the coming of Mashiach, the war of Gog and Magog, I like to quote the Rambam. The Rambam in Hilchas Malachim tells us, he says, Kol elu behem. All of these types of things, all of these types of discussions, Lo yoda adam ad We don't really know what's going to happen until it happens. These things, knowledge of the future, they were closed off even to the prophets. 
גם חכמים אין להם קבלה בדברים אלו, and all of the Chachamim, the Torah scholars throughout the years, they didn't have any particular Mesorah or tradition in these ideas of, of the future. It was based on their interpretation or their understanding of the verses. He says, therefore, Trying to organize the exact structure of events. What's going to happen first? Where Eliyahu is going to come before Mashiach. The war will take place prior to Mashiach, after Mashiach. All of these things, that's not an ikr. That should not be our main focus. One should not work in these sources in the Agadah. And don't spend too much time in the Midrashim that speak about the future. Don't make them the main focus. Here's the key line. Because what's the whole point of learning? What's the whole point of any, any engagement in Torah study? It's to bring us to higher levels of Yira and Ava, to, to enhance our reverence and our love for Hashem. But wasting time in this area, She'ein mevi'in loli de'yira v'loli de'ava, it will not bring you to reverence, nor will it bring you to love. So have a wonderful evening. <laughs> Thank you for coming. Let's go learn something real. But I think the point is well taken. To try to figure out what's going to happen in the future, to try to have a clear, vivid image of what's going to take place, we're not going to spend time doing that. We're going to spend time strengthening our resolve and our commitment and our understanding of the truth of Torah through seeing things that were actually predicted or at least alluded to well before these events actually occurred. And the Ramban tells us in many places throughout his commentary in Bereshis, he has a line, Maisa Avos Simen Labanim, which means that the actions or the, the uh, stories that take place with our Avos, with Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, it's an indication or it's actually somewhat of a revelation as to what will take place with their descendants in the future. This is the Ramban in Parshas Lech Lecha. He says, O Melecha Klal, I want to teach you a guiding principle Tavin so that you should understand this well. Bechol ha-parshios ha-bos be'inin Avraham, Yitzchak, Yaakov. All of these parshios, Lech Lecha, Vayera, Chayasara, Toldos, that deal with the stories of our Avos. V'hu inyin gadol hizkiruro b'seinu b'derech kitzara. This is a, a very important thing to know that our rabbis have taught us. Kol ma she'ira l'avos. Anything that takes place with our Avos. Simen Labanim, it's a sign for the children. And that's why, he goes on to explain, the Torah has so many psukim, so many, so many sentences about the stories of Avraham and Yitzchak and Yaakov. When other parts of the Torah, when it comes to real mitzvos, the instructions for living, they're alluded to a line here or there. Why is there so much about the stories of our Avos, says the Ramban? Because through those stories, we're actually learning about the future. He says a similar idea in his introduction to Shmos. He says, uh, the reason why Sefer Bereshis, the entire first book of the Torah, it's called Sefer Yitzira. It's known as the Book of Creation. 
So we would assume it's called the book of creation because it has the story of creation. And you also have the creation of the Jewish people, the family of Avraham, leading up to Bnei Yisrael. Says the Ramban, it's called Sefer Yetzirah for something much deeper. Because the Yetzirah, the creation of what will happen in the future, is actually shared with us throughout the entire Sefer Bereshis. By learning those stories well, that's the Yetzirah, that's the formulation of what's going to take place in the future. So we jump into Parsha's Toldos. Before we do one more source, this is a famous verse in Sefer Daniel. The, uh, the entire book of Daniel is very cryptic. Not only is it extremely hard to read and decipher, because it's a form of Aramaic, but the, uh, the content itself is very elusive, it's very abstract. There are two psukim here in the, the seventh chapter. On the Daniel, Daniel shared the following prophecy. I saw this vision at night. And I saw four winds of the heaven stirring up the great sea. And then what happened in the water? And then four massive creatures came out of the sea. Each one different than the next. And the Midrashim tell us he's referring to the four exiles. We know altogether throughout Jewish history there were four exiles. We have Golis Bavo, and that was after the destruction of the first temple. Anybody know the year? When was the first temple destroyed? So in, in secular historians would tell you 586, and the Gemara would tell us 422. So let's call it 422. That was Golis Bavel because that was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of uh, Babylonia. The next Golis, the next isle is Poros, the Persian exile. And that's when the story of Purim takes place. The third is Madai, or rather um, Yavan, which is Greece. That's the story of Hanukkah. Once we have the second base of Migdash, the, uh, the revolt of the Hashmanayim. And the fourth is Golas Edom, which is the exile of Esau. Edom are the uh, descendants of Esau, which uh, we'll see from many sources, Edom is Rome. That's the, the Roman exile referring to when the Romans destroyed the second base of Migdash in 70 CE. So these four monsters coming out of the water that Daniel was seeing in the prophecy were actually the four different monsters that, that were there throughout history. Says the Malbim, one of the, the great commentators on Tanakh, the fourth beast was unique. There he saw a very long and dark night, representing a long and bitter exile. The that fourth exile will be caused by the Romans, as is agreed upon by Rashi, the Ramban, the Rambam, in all of their letters. It's clear the fourth exile in classic Jewish thought is when we're under the oppression of Rome. 
He says, the Romans have three things that are unique to them. Achzorius, cruelty, a unique form of cruelty. Tevuna v'chachma, they're smart. They're, they're efficient. And gavura and strength, to be able to conquer enemies and take over other countries. Cruelty, smartness, and strength. So that was the Romans, but that was a long time ago. There's no more, no longer do we have a Roman Empire. Comes along a famous Gemara in Megillah, and this I, I, I hope you've heard before. This is Megillah Davav, where we're, uh, we're told, we're informed of a certain prayer that Yaakov shared with Hashem. Grant not Hashem the desires of the wicked. This is actually a verse in Tehillim composed by David Melech. But this was actually the words of Yaakov. What was Yaakov saying to Hashem? Omer Yaakov Livne Kadesh Baruch Yaakov said before the creator of the universe, Ribona Shalolam, Al Titan Le'esav HaRosha Taivas Libo. Don't allow Esav to accomplish the desires of his heart. Don't allow Esav to accomplish the, the desires of his heart. What is that a reference to? Says the Gemara, says the Gemara, Zu Garmamia Shel Edom. That's referring to Garmamia of Edom, of Rome. Shelomolehen Yotzin, that if you were to allow them to pursue the desires of their heart, Machrivin Kola Olam Kulo, they would destroy the entire world. So the prayer of Yaakov, was Hashem, please don't allow Esav or his descendants, Rome, not just the Roman Empire, this is referring to Garmamia, don't allow them to accomplish what they have in mind, because if they keep on going, they'll take over the world. So what country is Garmamia? Says the Vilna Gon in the 1800s, really the 1700s, the Vilna Gon says, Garmamia... Zu Garmania. Garmania is a reference to Germany. So the Gemara Megillah and Davav, and this Gemara goes back 1500 years, it's telling us that the, 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 the prayer of Yaakov to Hashem was don't allow Germany to accomplish their plans because if they're successful, they'll take over the entire world. So we have here four exiles throughout history. We have the, uh, the, the prayer of Yaakov davening for the fourth exile. And what's also interesting is the Gemara continues, and it says something, you read it the first time, it sounds kind of random. The Gemara says, There were 300 young princes with crowns tied to their heads in Germamia of Edom. And there are 365 chieftains in Rome. Okay. 300 young princes with crowns in Garmami of Edom and 365 chieftains in Rome. In the book, The Rise and Fall, the author here says as follows. By the end of the Middle Ages, Germany remained a a crazy patchwork of some 300 individual states. And by the end of the 17th century, German princes were confirmed as absolute rulers of their little domains, some 350 of them. 
So we have here, looking back in history, what the Gemara is referring to, Garmamia, seems to be fairly accurate. 300 individual states, 350, or the, uh, the Gemara said 365 um, princes. It's easy to say this is in hindsight. Did anybody know this to be the case? Did anybody live their life based on this understanding of the Gemara before 1939? Right, we're sitting here and it's, it's interesting to look back and to think maybe that Gemara refers to what actually took place during World War II. Did anybody live their life based on that knowledge before 1939? So there's a story that in 1898, the Kaiser of Germany, William Wilhelm II, he planned a visit to Jerusalem. And uh, he was the Emperor of Germany, he was the King of Prussia, when Theodor Herzl found out about this, he made a ticket as well to meet him in Israel. And he thought, listen, maybe speaking to him on the Holy Land, I could convince him to, uh, to help us out with our plan of trying to have a Jewish homeland. October 28, 1898, Herzl traveled and he docked at Jaffa. He took a train to Jerusalem. In the meantime... Wilhelm began a tour of the old city. He hid together with his wife and a whole entourage making their way through the streets of Jerusalem by horse and carriage. And uh, the, whole, the whole city was ready for him. There were three different gates that were decked out and, and decorated. The nicest gate was the Jewish one. It was the most elaborate and impressive of all three. It had silk curtains embroidered with silver and gold. Greeting the Kaiser at the gate were the two chief rabbis and dignitaries from the local Jewish community. So interestingly enough, Theodor Herzl did have opportunity to speak with Wilhelm, and uh, the conversation was pretty much worthless. In the words of Theodor Herzl, he was neutral at best. He didn't say no, but he was not at all enthused about the idea. There was one major personality, though, that didn't show up that day. And he was known as the Mora de Asra, the master of the place in Eretz Yisrael. Who am I referring to? Rav Yosef Chaim Zonenfeld. Rav Yosef Chaim Zonenfeld was one of the great leading authorities at the time who lived in Eretz Yisrael. And he didn't come. Hundreds of people were there. Many religious people were there because they wanted to see someone of his stature, someone of that caliber, to be able to say a bracha. What bracha do you make when you see a melech, a ruler? Say, Baruch atah Hashem, Malokeinu melech olam, Shecholach michvodo lebasar v'adam. Hashem, you bestow, you share your glory with human beings. So why wasn't Rabbi Yosef Chaim Zonenfeld there to say that bracha with the masses? So he shared later, he said, I have a tradition. My Rebbe, my teacher, Yeshua Leib Diskin, he has a tradition from the Gra, the Vilna Gon, that when the Gemara and Megillah tells us that Garmamia is Edom, Garmamia is referring to Germany, I want nothing to do with Edom. I don't want to go out and see him, I don't want to be part of that. 
So in 1898, Rav Yosef Chaim Zonenfeld, based on the, uh, the, the Vilna Goen's understanding of that Gemara, would not go outside to see this person because that's Edom, that's Rome. As you go throughout the story in Parshas Toldos, the first thing we hear is that V'yotza Harishon Admoni, that when Rivka is finally giving birth, the first child comes out, and he's red. He's red all over. Very strange complexion. Reminds me of a story I have to tell you quickly. My, uh, my brother, who now has four boys, Baruch Hashem, the oldest is now 14 years old. So for his first child, I was home uh, during that time from yeshiva, and uh, I was together with my, my mother and my brother's mother-in-law because they were going back and forth and they were in the hospital for a long time. And uh, I don't know why, my mother wanted me to be there with everybody. So we were staying up till 3, 4 in the morning waiting for the news. And I remember sitting in the, in the waiting room of Cedar sinai I'm just exhausted beyond belief. And I'm wondering, why am I here? I can just go home and get a good night's sleep and hear the good news in the morning. And then I get a, a little picture message. This is going back 14 years. So it was not nearly as clear. This is before the smartphone. It was uh, quite dumb. So I have a sense of what that picture is going to be. I open it up and I see the ugliest little baby you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> And I'm just thinking to myself, do I show mom? <laughs> what is she going to say? But I cannot show her. So I show both my mother and my brother's mother-in-law, and their reaction was, oh. <laughs> Baruch Hashem, he got very cute pretty quickly. But that first picture was, uh, was far from cute. But Esau, we're told, he was born red. What's the significance of being bored red? Comes along the Malbim again, the Malbim explains as follows. The fact that he was red was a, was a reflection of a mida, of an overall aggression, of anger, of jealousy, of all the negative midos. The red complexion is somehow an indication that a person is aggressive. There's a Gemara actually in Shabbos that says that there are certain people based on their mazel. We don't have time to get into what mazel is, but based on some kind of influence from the red planet, referring to Mars, they're more aggressive. They're more aggressive by nature. So Esav seems to be one of those people. And then we go a few verses later, and we have the famous story in the beginning of the Parsha, that uh, Esav comes in from a long day of hunting, and he's exhausted, and he sees Yaakov cooking the lentils, and he says, Please, Please give me from that red stuff, because I'm exhausted. Says the Torah, That's why they call his name Edom. Edom means red. So that's also kind of strange. Just because he referred to the lentils as the red stuff, from now on, that's his nickname? I remember growing up in, in middle school, 
I had a friend, I felt bad for him. Eventually I called him the name Malsim, as everyone else did, but people called him Barbie doll. Why? Because his sister played with Barbies. So now David is Barbie doll. We don't do that. There's actually a halacha against calling someone by a derogatory nickname. So why does the Torah say, therefore, based on this episode, we call Esau Edom, and his descendants will be referred to as Edom? The Rebbein B'chaya comes along and he says, it wasn't just the food, it was everything about him. His food was red, his country was red, his clothing was red, that the whole idea of bloodshed and aggression, that was the mahus, that was the essence of Esau, and that was the essence of his descendants. So it seems like we're not just calling him Edom because he happened to refer to the, the stew as the, the red stuff, but we're calling him Edom because that's his whole essence. He's aggressive. Where do we find the red color in its full form? What color was the Roman flag? It was red. What color was the German flag? It was red. Red flag with the white circle and the swastika in the middle. In uh, Mein Kampf, Hitler, and Mach Shemo, he, uh, he defined the symbolism of the, uh, the flag as follows. He said, the red represents the social idea of the Nazi movement. The white disc represents the national idea, and the black swastika used in Aryan cultures for millennia represents the, quote, mission of the struggle for the victory of the Aryan man, and by the same token, the victory of creative work. So we find this red theme going from Rome until Hitler. We find Germany being alluded to in the Gemara and Megillah. But yet what's strange, and this is hopefully going to help us put all the pieces together, Asaph was not the only person who was referred to as red. Who else was referred to as having a red complexion? King David, David Amalekh. The famous story in Shmuel. So Shmuel is instructed by Hashem to find the next king. And he goes to Ishai, and he's looking through all of his boys, and he says, oh, maybe it's Eliyav, maybe it's him, and it's not. So finally, he doesn't know what to do. So he asks Ishai, do you have any more boys? Ishai responds, yeah, I mean, we have one more, you know, he's out with the sheep, little scrawny David, bring him in. David all, he's not going to be the Melech. Bring him in. So v'yishlach, v'yivehu, Vahu Admoni, the exact same expression. They sent for David, they brought him in, and now when we define or describe his appearance, Hu Admoni, he was red, just like Esau. Explains the Malbim again, the reason why in Shmuel's perception, he would never have thought in a million years that David would be the next king, because look at him, he has a red complexion, he must be aggressive. He's not fit to be the Melech Yisrael. He's not fit to be the leader of the Jewish people. It can't be him. However, he was precisely the one that Hashem had in mind because he had that midah, because he had that power, that courage, that force within him, he was the one who had the ability to be a manhig, to be a leader. That was David a Melech. 
So although he could have gone one of two directions, he could have been an Esau. He had the same makeup, he had the same brain chemistry. Well, no one has the same brain chemistry, but he had a similar type of uh, aggressive nature. But he was able to channel that for the good, and that's why he was chosen to be Melech Yisrael. Another famous personality in Jewish history that we learn didn't start off being a tzaddik. Didn't start off with this beautiful, very calm demeanor. His name was Moshe, known as Moshe Rabbeinu. The very end of the Torah, we're told, Zosa bracha, this is the blessing asher beirach Moshe, that Moshe shared with the Jewish people. Ish Elohim. The title of Moshe is Ish Elohim. He was a man of God. Why are we calling a man of God? By saying Ish, that that's almost a put down. He's a man, he's a moral human being. And the Orachayim explains, one of the, the classic commentaries in the, the early 1700s, he says, the Torah is letting you know that you shouldn't think he was humble, he was wise, he was kind, and he was gentle. It must be he was born like that. It must be he was, he was you know, from the womb, just a tzaddik, who could sit there in class and pay attention and not be fidgety. And he didn't have any ADD issues, he didn't have any social problems, he could learn how to read when he was in kindergarten, he didn't have any of this stuff, he was Moshe Rabbeinu. Comes along the Torah and says, Nishta Zoi! That's not true! He started off as a normal little boy. And he couldn't sit in class either. And he had problems also. And he got into fights with his friends. But although he was Ish, although he, was Ish he made himself into Ish Elohim. He was able to transform himself, not by denying or getting rid of who he was, but by utilizing some of those, those ambitions and passions to transform himself into a leader. There's an amazing letter by the Chazon Ish. Somebody was writing him about a, a young man in yeshiva who was just all over the place. He wasn't able to, to really get into the yeshiva studies and he was getting involved with different things that, that good yeshiva boys don't get involved with. He, the, the person asking the question to the Chazon Ish was saying, it's such a shame because he's such a bright boy. He has so much potential but yet he's just squandering it all because he's getting involved with all these things. So the Chazonish has a small letter he writes back. He says, first of all, you should know, that's the way of people who are curious and who are living with their eyes open. Oftentimes they get involved with things they shouldn't get involved with. He says, however, you should also know, godless greatness will usually come from Dafka, these type of personalities. They say the story that Rav Hutner, the, uh, he heard about Rav Freifeld based on, on seeing an article that he was involved with a protest, and he saw the, the passion in Rav Freifeld's face, that he was so enthused about something. Rav Hutner supposedly said, we need this kid in the yeshiva. So I think this is an awesome insight into the nature of Esav. Is it true that from the womb he was different? The answer is yes. Was he doomed for failure? The answer is no. We have Bechira, we have free will. He could have been David Melech. Esav could have been David Melech. 
and David and Melech could have been Esav. So to get to question number three, what was Yitzchak thinking? Don't you get it? Don't you see what your wife is saying? Rivka, she sees Ishtam, Yoshev, Ohalim. He's a good, sincere boy. He's learning all the time. What was Yitzchak thinking? The answer is, if you were to ask Yitzchak, uh, my fleshic spoon fell into my milchic pot. The pot was Eino Ben Yoma, but the spoon was used. It wasn't for meat, it was for chicken. He would probably tell you, um, ask Yaakov that question. I wouldn't ask Esav. If you want a halacha, is the, uh, Yaakov is the scholar. But he was thinking down the road. He was thinking years and years and years into the future, who has the potential to be a greater Jewish leader? Esav. Esav has that fire. He's red. He has the potential to be David the Melech. That's where Yitzchak was coming from. Now he was still wrong because he didn't fully understand his personality. He didn't fully understand that Esav was manipulating and he was exploiting and he, he, he wasn't utilizing his potential. But that's at least how we understand where Yitzchak was coming from. There's a story with Ramosha Feinstein I'd love to tell over. This is uh, after World War II. There was a new printing of the, of the Shas, the entire Talmud. It was a beautiful new printing. It wasn't quite laser print, but it was a lot you know, more clear than the previous uh, edition. And he was out learning as he did during the summer. He would sit outside uh, the table with his Gemara open, and he would be taking copious notes. He was writing all the time. As you know, he was a prolific author. Uh, there were people who testified to the fact that whenever Ramosha was outside learning, although there were mosquitoes or flies around, somehow they never bothered Ramosha. They didn't get within his little zone. He had this force field around him when he was learning. So he gets up for a moment, and one of the, the students are curious. They want to take a look. I wonder what he's learning right now. I wonder what he's in the middle of writing. And in those days, this is before the pens that we have, it was a fountain pen, a little inkwell that was right there by the Gemara. The young man leans over to see what Ramosha was writing, and the ink spills all over the Gemara. And he's mortified. He wanted to bury himself in the sand. Ramosha comes back a few minutes later. He sees what happened. And uh, this young man doesn't know what to say. Ramosha looks up at him and he says... It looks beautiful in blue. That was the story. And that story is somewhat famous. That's in the biography. The, uh, the postscript to that story is that who was the young man? That young man was Reb Nisan Alpert, one of his main Talmidim. Somebody asked Reb Nisan Alpert after that story, I'm sorry, Reb Nisan Alpert himself went to Ramosha Feinstein and asked him, Rebbe, how do you do that? How do you not get angry? I know how much you were excited about this new shas, and I ruined that entire blot gemara. How do you not lose your control? What was Ramosha's answer? He didn't say, well, that's who I am. I was born like this. I'm a tzaddik. I don't get angry. That's beneath me. His answer to Rebnis and Alpert was, it took me decades. It took me decades to get here. That means likely when Ramosha Feinstein was 35 years old, it would have been a different response. 
would have been a different response. We're not born tzaddikim, and sometimes when we sense within ourselves or within our children, there's, there's a, a distraction, there's an aggression, there's a, a lack of focus, sometimes that could be the greatest indication to potential for real achievement. Getting back to the future. The, uh, the famous Midrashic source, the Medrash Tanchuma, tells us, this is going about, uh, forward a few parshios, that um, the, the famous dream of Yaakov, he's on his way to find himself a wife, and he lays down and he has the vision of the ladder and the angels ascending and descending. So what was the basic message of that vision? So the answer is there are many, many levels. One basic understanding is that those melachim were representing different nations. And the message was to Yaakov, although nations will rise, they're going to fall. Anything that goes up must come down. So one malach represented Bovel, the first exile. The next malach was Persia, that was the second exile. The next malach was Greece. And then when Yaakov saw the fourth malach, referring to the exile of Edom, of Rome, he kept on going up and up, and it looked like he was never coming down. So Yaakov was afraid. And he thought, maybe they'll never come down. Maybe they'll keep on getting stronger and stronger until they take over the entire world. To that, Hashem comforted Yaakov, and he said, don't worry, the higher they climb, the harder they fall. That was the message to Yaakov. And the verse that's quoted is a verse in Ovadia. Ovadia is one of the, the twelve minor Nevi'im, a very, very short Sefer in Nach. The verse there is, this is all in reference to Edom, the descendants of Esau, which we know through the Gemara and Megillah is a reference not just to the Roman Empire, but to their, their, their progeny, referring to Germany and the Nazis. What's the prophecy? Im tagbiya kinesher. Even if they rise as high as an eagle, v'im bein kochavim siim kanecha, and even if amongst the stars they make their nest, misham aridcha, from there I'll bring you down, Nuum Hashem, so says Hashem. Interesting analogy. Why, why choose the reference of a nesher, of an eagle? An eagle is, a, is somehow metaphoric of, of Edom. And the answer is, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Because we know, and the Malbim tells us again, he says, this verse in Ovadia, where Hashem says, even if you, Edom, fly as high as an eagle, I'll bring you down. The Malbim says, this is a nevuah. This is a prophecy for the future. Shiba'achris hayamim, that in the end of days, and he wrote this in the 1800s, in the end of days, Tigdel Malchus Edom, the kingdom of Edom, will expand. And it will look like it's exploding and taking over the whole world. But from there, Hashem will bring them down. The Malbim says this verse is a prophesizing the future. Why the eagle? That was the sign of Rome. Right? The, the, the Reich Sadler was the eagle that the Germans used feeling that they were the legacy of the Roman Empire. We have the very end of our Parsha to finish up looking back into the future. 
a line that when you read it in Shnai Mikri, you go through it quickly, doesn't really register. V'yelech Esav el Yishmol, that Esav went to Yishmol, V'yikach es Machlas bas Yishmol ben Avraham, and he took himself a wife, her name was Machlas, the daughter of Yishmol, who was the son of Avraham. Okay. I want to share with you a comment from Rav Yitzchok Isaac Chover. I'm curious, who here in the room has heard of Rav Yitzchok Isaac Chover? Dr. Menashehov? So he was a master of Kabbalah, and he was, he was a master of all the writings of the Vilna Gon. Now, it's very likely he himself was not a disciple of the Vilna Gon because he passed away, the, the Vilna Gon passed away when Rav Yitzchak Isaacover was probably 10 or 11. But he learned from the disciples of the Vilna Gon, so he was a, a second generation, and everything that he says goes back to that Torah, goes back to that, that same source. Listen to the words of Rav Yitzchak Isaacover explaining this verse. Esav and Yishmal, those nations, they're the nations who are in control pretty much of the entire world. They are, they are grabbing on to all of civilization. If theoretically they would combine forces... Then then they would destroy the world. Meaning to say, oftentimes you'll see Esau, which we'll say is the, the Roman Empire or Christianity, in conflict with Yishmol. But if they were somehow to get together, that could be devastating. He says that they actually had a plan to get together. Just like originally when you had that marriage between Esav and Machlas. Veratel is chabarimo, although also Machshav Tlapoel Hashem did not allow their plan to come to fruition. Listen to these words. And the same thing will find in exile. Rotsim lis chaber yachad. They're going to want to join forces with each other. Leos lehem shlita gemura to have a complete power and control over the world. But Hashem will not let this happen. So if you're writing this in the early 1800s, and, and you think about it objectively, it, it's almost absurd. The world of Yishmael and the world of Edom they were two different civilizations, two different cultures, and they hated each other. Why and when would they ever try to come together to destroy the world? Answer is 1941. 1941, we have the infamous meeting between the, the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, Al Husseini, and, uh, and Hitler, Mach and just recently, they, they recorded, or they, they actually shared the, uh, the written documentation of the conversation, the back and forth between Al-Husseini and Hitler. Al-Husseini begins the conversation by telling Hitler that we're on the same page. 
ideology, and, and although we have different religions, we have the same mission, and we have a common enemy. And we're here to fight, we're obviously against the Jews, and we're against any hope of them having a homeland in Palestine. He even suggests to Hitler that we could start a revolt, and we'll take down all of the Jews living in Israel, we'll work together. And during World War II, Israel was one of the, the places where you could go and, and hopefully live out the war. Hitler says back to the Grand Mufti, basically I, I agree with you 100% and we should work together and my goal is to get all of the countries on board to join us in our, in our final solution. The one thing the Grand Mufti asked of Hitler is that if you could please declare publicly, as the German government has already done privately, that it favored the elimination of the Jewish national home in Palestine. Speak about that more. I know you're here in Germany and throughout Europe, you're trying to kill the Jews, but also put it out there that you don't want any Jewish home in Palestine. Now on July 31st, Reinhard Hedrich of the SS received the directive to prepare the quote, total solution of the Jewish question. That was the official directive of the, the final solution. July 31st, 1941. What was that date, by the way? That was the day before Tisha B'Av. That was the 8th of Av. And also, coincidentally, when they put it into motion, that was the following year on Tisha B'Av itself. Hitler tells the Grand Mufti that we stand together. Germany is uncompromising in its war against the Jews. And he says, ideologically, the war is a battle between national socialism, as represented in the red and the flag, and the Jews. So although we could hear a lot of different things about World War II, if you ever read the, the things that Hitler and Machimo actually said, in his warped, disgusting mind, it was all about the Jews. That was the mission. So now you read that last Pasuk of the Parsha that Esav goes and he marries the daughter of Yishmael, and you understand it in a whole different light. If Yitzhak Isaac Hover is telling us this is actually a prediction for the future, that they will try to get together again, and if Hashem would have allowed that union, that would have been the destruction of, of the world, and that would have been the end of Judaism. So what do we have so far? We looked back into the future. We saw that, that Esau has this special quality of aggression, he was not doomed to failure. He had Bechira, he had free will. However, his whole, his whole essence is, 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 is viewed as red because that's who he was. He let that take over everything he did and therefore the, the Roman Empire as an extension of Esau and Germany as an extension of the Roman Empire, that's all viewed as red. That's Edom. David and Melech had the exact same qualities, but he was able to rise to the top and utilize those to, to grow and to be a Jewish leader, to be a spiritual giant. Yitzchak Avinu, he saw the potential in Esav, and that's why he loved him. He wanted him to be the leader because he thought he could do it. 
When did Yitzchak find out that he wasn't meant for the job? Only at the very end. At the very end when he realizes that he was tricked. What's his response? As soon as he finds out that really it wasn't Esav that came to me, it was Yaakov. Is he devastated? Does he want to take back the bracha from Yaakov? What does he say? He says, okay, you know what? And he should continue being blessed. Why are you so happy? You were into Esau. You weren't into to Yaakov. You should be disappointed. The answer is, and the, the altar of Navardic explains this. He says at that point he realized that Yaakov was not just Ishtam Yoshev Oholim. He was more than the naive Torah scholar who was sitting and meditating and learning. He could work the room a little bit. Yaakov gets it. The fact that he tricked me, the fact that he manipulated the situation to get the bracha, I respect that. That's what I'm looking for. I need a gavra. I need a Talmud Chacham. I need someone who's, who's living and learning, but I need someone who knows people, who can could, who could maneuver. That's why he wasn't disappointed. What does the future hold? We know there's going to be a massive war of Gog and Magog. Did that war already happen? Is it going to happen? So the Rambam would tell us, don't waste your time with that question. It will not bring you to Yira or Ava. Now I did hear from Rabbi Yisrael Belsky. Rabbi Yisrael Belsky said that in his assessment he feels that all of the conditions that we hear about in, in, the, in the Mishnayas, in the Gemara, about what's required to bring Mashiach, what needs to happen, he said, theoretically, everything could be behind us. He said, very likely, World War II, that could have been Melchemes Gogomogog. It could be. And there are indications to that as well. Our job, though, is not to think too much about the future, because that's not going to, to make us better people. What's going to make us better people is to realize that if we look back and see everything is predicted, if we look back and see amazing things from the Torah HaKadoshah, and from the Torah Shabbat and the Midrashim, these things are not coincidental. Garmania, Germany, is referred to as, the, as the, the, the potential for destroying the world that Yaakov was praying for. So I think the feeling we should get from this is, we have bitachon, we have amuna, we have a sense of, of comfort and security that Hashem has led us to this point. We see looking back in hindsight that everything is orchestrated as part of this master plan. And we look forward to the future. Mirz Hashem, we should be uh, greeted. Amen.